Hello and welcome to the bonus edition of the Farm and Phil, July 15th, 2020 episode. We interviewed Dr. Robert Lawrence, the founder and retired director of the Center for a Livable Future at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And the interview ran over the the amount of time that we had available to share on the episode, so um, this this little episode here is, contains parts of the interview that had to be cut. Um, I hope that you find some of it useful. Uh, this very beginning part here is really before the interview started, we were just chatting, getting to know each other, and he was starting to really zero in on the geography here in central Missouri and he started to tell stories of what he remembered and, and I shared a few stories of, of what I've seen happening just in my own little little bubble this first part um, Dr. Lawrence is looking at a website for coronavirus data and he's trying to find out which county I'm located in so I'm helping him zero in on the county and and then we start moving into talking about agriculture food systems hope you enjoy of Memphis. Northwest. Between, I'm right in the middle of St. Louis and Kansas City. Okay. Uh, I have Oregon, Missouri. This is by county. So what county are you in? Boone County.
Well, a bunch of these Missouri counties have had only 24 confirmed cases, 11 confirmed cases. That looks pretty good. Yeah, and we've only had two deaths so far in Boone County. Whereas, uh, St. Louis has had 7,500. So where are you in relation to St. Louis? Uh, east. I'm sorry, west. Due west? Yeah, straight west. Boone County uh, is pretty much in the center. Callaway. Boone is just the next west county. Okay, you've had 534 cases and two deaths. And you're getting that from the Johns Hopkins page? Yeah. sources here in Missouri is a volunteer that, I don't know, he dedicates three to eight hours a day checking all the health departments and everywhere else he can get data. So you're right in the middle of uh, <clears throat> a lot of the industrial food animal production uh, and the rate of uh, infection and deaths in the packing houses that raised alarms about our food system last month. Um, did you have any major packing houses in Missouri shut down? Um, that's a good question. I can't answer definitively. They've been very protective, very um, opposed to testing employees and so it's it's just there's this big mystery around what's going on with them I think one or two have closed down temporarily but I think they've opened back up mm -hmm. so well there uh, I know I know that uh, Smithfield Farms when it took over Purity Supreme acquired Purity Supreme about uh, almost 10 years ago had a number of uh, production facilities in north, especially northern Missouri uh, I don't remember where their processing was going on 
Yeah, I'm not for sure. From from my perspective, what I'm seeing is uh, people in Iowa, the citizens of Iowa, are kind of wisening up, and it seems like it's it's so late, you know, like it took them forever to get to this point, but it seems like they're finally putting the brakes on on CAFO construction. And so these companies have been working in the Missouri State House for a decade plus, just getting more and more bills passed kind of before the, the wave hits. And so getting those bills passed has really given them a lot of freedom. And I don't know, five years ago, there seemed to be more local activity, just little small groups that were trying to form coalitions to, to oppose a CAFO coming into the county. And we had like 20 counties with local control ordinances passed by the by, by the county health board or the commissioners. But then last year, the, the Senate and the House ran a bill, and the, it was the Senate bill that passed, that took away that local control. And so, you know, this is like right before the wave hits, I'm feeling, of these companies just saturating as much of Missouri as they can. Mm-hmm. The, the northern part of Missouri is mostly pasture land. The, the Ozarks is not really suitable. But with chickens, they've done a good job down around Springfield in the Ozarks of putting in a lot of chicken houses. But that's been going on for two decades now. The, it's the pigs that are rolling in. And in Callaway County, the county you just mentioned, there's a... There's a facility that went in two years ago that is growing, um, I can't remember the terminology right now, but they've got several hundred sows, and they're, they're breeding them out and, and selling 10,000 piglets. Yeah. I'm not sure what yeah. they call them. And well, uh, I think they're going straight to China. And I'm a soil scientist, so I'm looking at all the grain that's getting raised, you know, just destroying the topsoil and adding more chemicals to the topsoil from the from grain production all the way to the the pig production. And then the kicker is is it's for what? To send it out of the country? Like it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, and in fact industrial food animal production uh, relies so heavily on externalities, you know, um, socializing the risk and the environmental cost while privatizing the profits. And, um, and the, this, this sounds like a, um, uh, Smithfield facility because, uh, Smithfield was purchased by a Chinese company, Xinhua, uh, six or seven years ago, and it, although Smithfield is still corporate headquarters in Richmond, Virginia, but they're, uh, um, they're really now a Chinese-owned company. And so we're, you're, you're exactly right, we're, we're 
exploiting uh, and depleting non-renewable resources, and uh, including water. I mean, uh, when you think about virtual water, when we sell soybeans to uh, China to feed the pigs that are being raised in China, and when China imports soybeans from Brazil, they're converting uh, Ogawa, Ogawa Aquifer uh, irrigated soybean production in the U.S. and Brazilian rainforest being cleared for soybean production in Brazil into virtual water for China, which has used up all of its uh, water in the northern part of China. Um, the estimates are that it's about a thousand to one ratio of uh, um, how much virtual water gets uh, transported in soybeans to China that uh, takes a thousand tons of water to produce a ton of soybeans and then you uh, sell the soybeans to China and they essentially get a, a hundred to one benefit in terms of not needing their own water resources, which they have already depleted. Wow. So it's a bit of a, it, it, it's totally non-sustainable and it's uh, unhealthy for the environment, for public health and for long run our economy. I hope you enjoyed that little little tidbit of share. Like I said, that was uh, before the interview really got started. We were just kind of getting to know each other, and I appreciated some of the information he shared and wanted to share some of it with you too. The music for this bonus episode is the same as the music that was used for the July 15th, 2020 episode. Okay, the rest of this uh, bonus section includes the finality of the interview and our closing remarks. And uh, I backed up just a little bit because... For the episode that was broadcast on the radio, I didn't didn't include the entire story, so I kind of cut him off in the middle of the story. So I backed up just a little bit to where that story began, so you could hear all of that again in its entirety. And uh, then he goes on to talk about some respiratory illnesses and stories and mental health illnesses and stories. And he gives some advice for protecting ourselves from the industrial food system. And I thought it was nice. He finishes up by giving praise and gratitude for our food system workers and asks for us to support them as they seek protections from the large industrial system that they are either employed with or contracted with. And that really resonates with me. Um, 
you know, seems like the people that would want to take these kinds of jobs might be in a desperate situation to start out with. And so it's a good reminder to check in on these folks and and see if they need some help. Hope you enjoy the uh, remainder of the interview. that uh, 
are responsible for the uh, odor of uh, uh, swine manure. Um, and most of those are compounds called ketones. Uh, most of them are not immediately injurious to one's health. They are injurious to your psychological health. And I remember a uh, situation in northern Missouri where a um, Purity Supreme hog facility of 80,000 animals was uh, plopped down in the midst of a farming community where the average uh, farm was uh, 100, 150 acres, a lot of cow-calf operations and uh, sweet corn production and things like that. And there were nine or ten of these uh, family farms surrounding this uh, CAFO. Those fam uh, farms had been in families for two, three, or four generations. <clears throat> and uh, the farmers would be out plowing their field, getting ready to plant sweet corn, and the wind would shift, and the odor from the uh, open cesspit would be so overwhelming, they'd start to gag, they'd, they'd have to uh, leave the tractor and dash into their house and stay indoors until the wind shifted. They no longer could invite uh, family members and friends who lived in town out for barbecues and picnics because the odor was so overwhelming. So how you characterize that as a human health problem, I think, is ranges gets us into the whole area of uh, well-being and uh, psychological uh, state. It certainly made lives miserable for those people. And uh, fortunately, they were successful in litigation that was brought against the uh, swine facility for having essentially uh, destroyed the uh, livability of their uh, neighborhood. And that happened despite the right to farm law. So there's there's court precedents that these operations destroy mental health in the neighborhood. Indeed, uh, late Steve Wing, a wonderful epidemiologist at the University of North Carolina, he did studies in eastern North Carolina, Duplin County, which has the highest concentration of hog uh, facilities in the state. Uh, and therefore one of the highest in the country. And he had a group of uh, uh, collaborating uh, community members who were willing to uh, uh, fill out uh, daily questionnaires. They were willing to have the uh, air uh, sampled in and around their homes on a regular basis. And he showed that uh, living near near a, a swine CAFO led to increased rates of throat irritation, uh, watering eyes, uh, various other respiratory, upper respiratory tract uh, symptoms that came and went in correlation with how intense the odor was. And in addition to that, uh, the questionnaire, which was uh, one of the you know, very 
uh, well-crafted measure of uh, uh, psychological well-being showed uh, that mood and uh, uh, sense of well-being shifted also in correlation with things. And then he was able to correlate that with actual air sampling uh, that uh, captured at the same time that the people were reporting on their own symptoms and sense of well-being, captured concentrations of uh, these various components and uh, air emanating from uh, open cesspits. So um, there's very, very good data available now supporting how uh, injurious to the health of the public these uh, CAFOs are. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. You've uh, provided a lot of context and real, real-world stories um, about the reality of these. Um, I'm curious now, what, what should one do to uh, protect themselves, uh, given that these are in the community? First of all, um, we, uh, on an individual basis, uh, uh, 21 times a week, three times a day, we make a choice about what we're going to have for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. We can make an immediate impact on our own personal health by cutting back on the amount of animal products. We haven't talked about the risk factors of a high meat diet, and I don't want to introduce that. That's a, a whole new uh, and very important subject. But suffice to say that uh, the literature that I've been uh, citing about antibiotic resistance, there's another very extensive literature that uh, shows that uh, if we eat something more akin to the Mediterranean diet, where the uh, the grains, the pasta, the uh, fruits and vegetables are the entree, and the uh, animal product is the little uh, side condiment. Instead of having the big hunk of uh, steak or pork chop or chicken breast as the entree, and little scattered bits of uh, uh, grains and vegetables uh, as the condiments, uh, we would live healthier and longer, and uh, that's really now irrefutable by the data from around the world, including data in our own country where you have a natural experiment of uh, Seventh-day Adventists and Mormons compared to the rest of the population. The Mormons and the Seventh-day Adventists are alike in that they avoid uh, tobacco, alcohol, and caffeine. They are different in that Mormons are like the average American uh, omnivores, and they eat meat as well as uh, fruits and vegetables, whereas the Seventh-day Adventists uh, are vegetarians. And uh, both groups, Mormons and Seventh-day Adventists, live longer than the average American, and that's related to... Uh, staying away from tobacco and uh, alcohol. 
but the Seventh-day Adventists outlive the average Mormon by two and a half years uh, because they're vegetarians as well. And uh, so the first thing we can do is seven uh, seven days a week, three times a day, we can say I'm going to uh, I'm going to have a modest portion of animal product, or I'm going to uh, skip meat entirely, meat-free Monday, which is uh, a project that the Center for a Livable Future has collaborated with the Healthy Monday campaign in New York City, uh, started by a retired ad executive, Sid Lerner, uh, who borrowed from the uh, experience of World War One and World War Two when we had meatless Mondays and wheatless Wednesdays and so forth as part of the war effort. And the Meatless Monday movement has actually led chefs to create very, very uh, enticing uh, vegetarian uh, menu items and has stimulated, introduced uh, more and more people to the pleasures of uh, eating a more Mediterranean-like diet. So that's things we can do at the personal level. Collectively, if enough of us did that, of course, we reduced demand. And so reduced demand would diminish the call for continued expansion of CAFOs with one caveat, and that is what you mentioned about uh, shipping piglets to China. As long as uh, our industrial food animal production system has a large export market, then uh, we're not going to control CAFOs just by de reducing demand on the domestic level. But then I think with the accumulated uh, scientific evidence, some of which I've shared with you today, um, I think we really do have to have uh, increasing restrictions on uh, CAFO expansion. Uh, the American Public Health Association, the largest uh, public health association uh, in the United States and next to WHO, the largest in the world, at its last meeting uh, last November, uh, endorsed a CAFO moratorium calling upon uh, the federal government and states uh, across the United States to uh, cease and desist a construction of new CAFOs or the expansion of CAFOs that are already in existence, and they did it entirely on the basis of the impact on public health. So uh, there's growing uh, awareness uh, needs to get translated into political will, and the political will then needs to translate into uh, the kind of uh, uh, regulations that would protect uh, people from the harmful effects of uh, CAFOs in their neighborhood. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert. I always feel like it's important to understand um, something that we can do to, to deal with the issue instead of feeling hopeless about it. Um, okay, uh, I think we're about out of time. <coughs> is, there, is there anything else that you would like to share before we part ways? Well, just one uh, thought about uh, the, the people who 
raise the food and, and feed us and provide for food security in the United States. Uh, they've been at increased risk during the pandemic, and I think we all owe them a debt of gratitude for continuing to show up to transport the food, to sell it to us in the grocery stores. Uh, and I know a lot of them are really hurting with uh, restaurants being shut down and so forth. But uh, uh, the rights of food workers, whether it's collecting tomatoes in Florida, the Imokali, uh food workers who have finally negotiated a, uh, a fair wage for uh, their work in the fields, to the people working in the big meatpacking plants like the one in Sioux City, South Dakota, that had to be shut down because it had over a third of its workforce uh, suffering from COVID-19. Uh, we need to protect them. We need to protect uh, all along the value chain of our complicated food system. And then secondly, I think we really need to be aware of the fact that uh, the vertically integrated industrial food animal producers like Tyson and Smithfield Farms and Purdue, they always talk about, we support family farmers. That's who grows your food. Well, that's, uh, I, I've talked to some of these uh, producers for large uh, integrated uh, food animal producers. And one of them, a man from Arkansas said, I feel like a serf on my own land. They are given contracts that they are essentially non-negotiable. If they say, oh, I don't like this part of it, then Purdue or Tyson or Smithfield Farms will say, okay, well, then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll grow our hogs or our poultry or uh, whatever elsewhere. Uh, they are part of a group of people who need our attention and support because they find themselves uh, locked into these contracts that require them at their expense to upgrade their facilities, to uh, build new barns, to improve the water system, to do this and that. They own nothing in the value line. The birds, the pigs, the cows are owned by Tyson and Purdue and Smithfield Farms. What the contract grower is left with is the waste and the whatever mortality has occurred in their flock or their herd, uh, and they are making pennies on the dollar of what the major producers are making. And so I, I want, don't want anything that I've said today to come across as being critical of those hardworking contract farmers. Uh, they need attention too, and they need regulation and protection uh, through action that would allow them to have more autonomy, more control. And many of them, like the uh, group in Iowa, the, uh, there are over a thousand farmers now that have broken free from the uh, vertically integrated system and they're raising hogs on pasture, open uh, hoop barn structure. Uh, they've gotten rid of gestation crates. They've done all of the things that 
animal rights advocates and that public health advocates would say has to be done in order to uh, raise animals in a healthy, responsible, and humane way. So we need to pay attention to the plight of that group of critically important people in our food system. What's the name of that group in, in Iowa that you just referred to? Uh, the, oh, it's something like uh, Responsible Farmers of Iowa, or uh, it'll probably come to me. Uh, Dad Iker would know, uh, Don Iker would know right off the top of his head. Uh, but anyway, it's a very, it's, a, it's an important uh, lesson for the rest of the country. Yeah, that sounds like a good group to pay attention to and possibly learn from. Uh, maybe sounds like they're a little bit ahead of us. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Robert. I really appreciate your time, and um, I feel like there's so much more you could share. Um, thank well, you for sharing what you have. Uh, you're welcome. I've, I've enjoyed talking with you and uh, wish you well with your program. Thank you, Robert. I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Thanks. Yep. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Hope you enjoyed this bonus material. The interview went over and so happy to share. And I hope that uh, you learned something useful. You know, listening to Dr. Robert speak, I'm just reminded of the diversity of illnesses that are brought into the community. You know, there's there's different vectors, there's different illnesses with different vectors. You know, there's respiratory, there's leaching into the groundwater. There's runoff into the surface water. There's biological organisms getting carried around in the wind and left on surfaces in people's homes, on the plants. And I wonder, what are we leaving our children? This has all happened pretty quickly, it seems like. Forty years ago, I'm guessing, we started to see 
the infancy of this system to get engineered into Missouri farms. And as that system has gotten perfected over these decades, they need fewer and fewer farmers. And yet, the contamination zone, the risk zone, has grown exponentially. And then, of course, in this time of pandemic, it seems like we're inviting the risk of more pandemic to occur. Pigs are studied in high school biology because they're so closely related to humans as far as anatomy goes. Our bodies are very similar. And we have shared flus in the past. Blue jumps from pig to human or from human to pig. And putting all these animals in a large population, it's a fairly contiguous population as far as genetics goes. They've been you know working on streamlining the herd so that genetics are consistent throughout the entire population. So if there's a virus or a bacteria that can take advantage of this genetic makeup of, of the population, there's the potential for it to explode. And so each one of these um, concentrated facilities or slaughterhouses become each a unique place for a unique pandemic. And if you look at a map of capos for the country, you can see that Iowa is just saturated. And we've had them in Missouri for quite a while. They're nothing new. But it's a growing problem here in our homeland. In the land that we raise our children in. The land that we seek to enjoy life in. There's got to be a better way. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed, and I hope that 
this was meaningful for you. Thank you. Have a great day.